Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Yeah, my heart is very warm to see a man that I haven't seen since 1999. Uh, We've been crossing paths all over the world, and Bruce Goldsmith is on the line. I guess you're in the south of France right now, is that correct? Yes, I'm in the south of France, uh, where I've been living for 23 years now, uh, close to the the amazing flying site of Gordon. Unfortunately, we can't fly in Gordon right now because of the lockdown. Well, Bruce Goldsmith needs very little introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway, folks. Um, uh, He's going to tell us about uh, his 14-year-old experience of writing a letter to the BHPA in a moment. I'm going to let him tell the story. But he started flying hang gliders in 1979 at the age of 19 years old when he went to university. Um, He started hang gliders promptly, uh, designing hang gliders promptly there. In 1989, he started designing paragliders. Um, and for 20 years, he worked for Airwave uh, under the name uh, Marcus Fillinger, a man, a kind of philanthropist or entrepreneur who gave that business a go. And that's where we met in Stubai, in the Stubai Valley. He has been a paragliding champion many, many times. The world champion in 2007 in paragliders. Mm-hmm. He's been the British, the hang gliding and paragliding champion several times. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Hang gliding, paragliding is in his nature. He's been writing books. He's been writing uh, articles in the form of Icaristics uh, in the Cross Country magazine. He's a father. His profile picture on WhatsApp is with a gorgeous young daughter who must be 10 or 11 years old. Mm-hmm. He's got a son who's an absolute champion in paragliding. And he worked for, or actually he started Ozone in 1999. And then he went back to Airwave in 2000. He designed paragliders um, uh, uh, for Advance around 2010, where he started his own company, Bruce Goldsmith Design, in 2013. With the very first glider, the Tala, in the C category, it came with much acclaim. uh, And a super interesting man. And as I said, it's with great, great pleasure that it gives me uh, this opportunity to do this video and um, uh, uh, audio podcast with the great Bruce Goldsmith. Bruce, start with your story of 14 years old, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, um, I first saw hang gliders uh, when I went with my parents to visit my grandparents in Worthing. And we used to drive past Stenning Bowl on the South Downs and I saw hang gliding. And it made me dream about hang gliding from a very young child age. And um, when I was 14, I wrote to the BHPA and asked them if I could start hang gliding and if I could go to a school. And they said, uh, no, you cannot until you're 16. So I actually started when I first went to university when I was uh, 19 years old at London University. And there you studied double engineering, uh, but you very quickly got distracted in the flying world. Uh, What happened? Yeah, I started doing civil engineering and I did do civil engineering for around 10 years, getting qualified as an engineer. Um, 
But the thing that happened was uh, Brian Milton moved in next door to my parents' house in Bristol. And uh, he at the time was the British team coach. And uh, we used to go flying together a lot. He, he helped me a lot by giving me new equipment and we would go flying as, as flying buddies every weekend. And then he encouraged me to join the British team and, uh, and really make uh, flying my career. I always remember him saying, you know, you can, you can be an engineer or you can be one of the greatest pilots in the world. You know, it's up to you. <laughs> and that was always the way he put it. Well, I think my affinity to you is one that we are both following our passions and following our dreams and doing what's really most important to us in our lives. Um, I know it might sound very idealistic or um, up in the air or uh, like we are complete dreamers, but so many people have the choice today to do what they want to do and you doing it. Um, what drives you? I mean, the thing that drives me is I just love the flying. Um, you know, I love, I love to be surprised by flying, you know, when you fly and things happen in a way which is really surprising. And uh, even though I've got, you know, 35 years of experience behind me, I'm still very often surprised by the way the weather is or things that happen when you're flying. And every day is like a new fresh day when you go flying. And you are one of those people, and I'm a firm believer that there are two kinds of people. People you can't tell anything because they know it all, and they are not wanting to learn anything new. And then you've got the curious mind, where fortunately you and I are addicted to that thing. We want to know more. Um, you're an extremely generous person, too. You don't have to write articles for the cross-country magazine. You don't have to do moments like this very podcast, but you do them. So uh, where does that come from? Well, I, I just love to share my passion for flying because, you know, as you say, it's it's uh, something that's fascinated me my whole life and gives me uh, a reason to live, you know, because I love it so much. It's really interesting. I think one thing that I'm very fortunate in doing, which has given me um, more depth to my flying, is the development of new products because constantly the development of the paragliding world is advancing and gliders are getting better and better. And uh, I'm always trying to uh, understand what makes gliders better and then fly gliders which are improved and try to understand which parts of the glider make it better and which ones don't. And, and it just gives me great pleasure to always fly with new products and to try to understand what makes them good and how I can make them better. Ah, fantastic. I mean, so basically your life, if I'm not mistaken, since you are 19 years old, has been dedicated. Uh, you told me you came to Johannesburg when I asked you earlier today. Uh, you came to South Africa just once to work a monster today called Santon City. And if you went there today, uh, Bruce, you'd be completely shocked by the steel and the glass. And it's a, like a little Shanghai there. Um, it's absolutely a shocker, absolutely artificial and terrible place. But that's where your engineering, if I'm not mistaken, turned into this passion for designing and furthering our sports. In a few moments, of course, I'm going to ask you what you think is going to come next in our and what you'd like to see evolving. Um, so I know it might be a curved ball. I don't want you to give any uh, secrets out, any cat out the bag. Like to hear your wildest dreams of where paragliders, forward slash uh, hang gliders, or a combination of the two are going to come. Would you like to discuss that right now? I mean. Yeah, I think um, 
there's been a there's been a very big change in paraglider design in the last uh, few years through the development of um, the computer simulation programs, and this has been such a, a huge change because in the past, you know, we had um, XFOIL and profile analysis programs, and these programs would tell us things, you know, that tell you to get more performance if you use this profile or this profile is more pitchy and you know, gives you a lot of information about profiles. And then we would put them in the gliders and then we wouldn't see the results would just not agree with the predictions from, from all these programs. But in the last couple of years, we've managed to develop the simulation of paragliders so well, so that now we're actually getting the right results from the analysis, you know, because in the past it just, it just didn't tie up. You know, we do one thing and see another result on the glider. But now we're actually analyzing one thing, predicting one thing, making the glider and getting a consistent result. And that's really a huge change. So this means the uh, simulation models are actually beginning to work. And this has just happened in the last uh, two years. And uh, there's actually uh, different simulation programs being worked on by different manufacturers. And I think these programs are not at all the same. You know, they are running on different principles with different um, algorithms and, and different uh, models of processing. So it's going to be very, very interesting. So the design methods of the companies are actually diverging apart and going off down different routes, which is really, really an interesting uh, development in the sport. Yeah, absolutely. It's what we need to do. I mean, uh, you know, obviously there was a hell of a big, uh, a, a huge debate about was it cool to take uh, prototypes out of the equation in competition flying? Uh, was it okay to, uh, was it better to homologate all gliders? I'd like your comments on that. Uh, how did you feel then? And how do you feel now when the announcement was made? That's it. The R11 has set to benchmark two guys died on the same day. Stop, uh, refresh. Um, what's your feeling then and, and now, please? Yeah, I I think that it's good to have uh, prototypes in competition, and uh, it's caused the sport a huge amount of damage by making the gliders certified gliders only in competition. Um, I think that it's it's made a complete transformation in the sport. It's basically removed all the professional pilots out of the paragliding sport. That's that's my opinion. Because, you know, there used to be at least, they say, 20, 25 pilots who were professional pilots working on development in competition. And now this job no longer exists. You cannot develop new gliders in competition. So those pilots now don't earn a living from flying competition. And mm -hmm. the guys that do do competition are doing so uh, as a leisure activity, really. So they're not earning money. They're not developing new products for the sport. They're, they're doing so to, to compete, uh, but they have to be funded independently from, from their job or from, from other works. So it's, it's, you know, sport has become less, the competition of the sport has become less professional and more, let's say, uh, more a consumer product, if you like, you know, competition has become something which is, uh, which is like a holiday. So it's mm. very different to, 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 and that's, you know, come as a large result of this certified gliders in competition. 
Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I also find it a bit of a shame. I mean, uh, I am a competition pilot. I fly lots of competitions, uh, but I fly competitions just for fun. Although, if you ask me, I would like a much edgier glider. I would like a glider that, like in the past, uh, fly this at your own free will. But be careful, it bites hard. Today, even the top-end gliders, whichever model you choose, is not going to bite you hard. It's going to be extremely predictable if it falls out of the sky. Which, okay, uh, it's again the risk versus reward. But uh, I think you agree with me. We set a maximum benchmark of where the development can go if you don't release prototypes and if you're not kind of grinding the edge all the time. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think that uh, you know certification is extremely expensive. And it means, for example, that we can't certify the gliders we would like to. Uh, so we can't do the competitions. And when, I've, when I make a prototype now, we have to go to the competition, fly next to the competition or not in the competition, which is just frustrating. You know? So that's what it, it limits the, the number of brands that can do competition to a very small number of brands that have the money to spend. And of course, uh, with a situation like Corona, which I've discussed with uh, several other pilots, I've had a couple of uh, pretty interesting competition pilots online. Lots of them have said to me, you know, really a shame for those manufacturers that are trying to enter into the competition market again, when just two manufacturers dom have dominated the competition market in the last years. And now all of a sudden, Corona puts a spanner in the works when a whole lot of new uh, developments would have come out. Now, I see you have the Diva, which, if I wasn't mistaken, you have the Adam in the A-Class and the Cure in the C-Class. And congratulations on the Cure. Bloody beautiful glider when it came out. Um, I had the chance to win a small weekend club competition in Austria with it. I had to land. Uh, the joker was to land in a little swimming pool, one of these little inflatable, tiny little swimming pools, not more than a meter big. You either were landing on the spot with several circles or in the swimming pool. And if I wasn't on the cure, I wouldn't have landed in that pool. But that bloody glider of yours put me right in that pool. I tell you what, fantastic. Going back to the, the diva, I noticed that your diva is in the CCC class. Was that your purpose or were you happy with it? Or were you planning for it to be D? Because that's what I, I understood. Yeah, the D, diva was always designed as a, a D class glider. Uh, but we, we simply, because CCC is half the price of END, we just did it as a CCC glider just for the, the convenience oh. of it. Um, we weren't really uh, wanting to sell the glider until it was really confirmed as uh, being finished. And, uh, and it's actually quite difficult because we, we certified the glider as CCC and the FAI say that you... The rules of CCC say that you have to make the glider available to the public and have it on your website. And so we put it on the website, but I actually decided, decided not to sell them. So we were in the situation where we were forced to uh, advertise them, but we were not allowed to, you know, we, we were supposed to sell them, but I decided not to sell them, you know. So it's just a stupid situation, you know, completely ridiculous. I think we sold like five in the end, but, you know, I, I really did not want to sell the, the Diva. But the FAI was forcing us to sell the Diva, you know, which is very strange. Strange that the FAI would want you, would go against the decisions of the manufacturer. You know? It doesn't make sense. And I feel your pain, friend. I mean, to go to the amount of effort that it goes to, to design a glider, to bring a glider out, to not release the glider until you're happy, because you truly are a perfectionist when it comes to that. 
A man uh, who reminds me a lot of you is Peter Ritchick. He's the owner of MacPera. He's been designing paragliders also since 1989. And I did a podcast with him a few days ago. And he will not release a glider until it's A, fun to fly, B, super safe. I get the feeling you're the same of the same kind of thinking. Um, that was the case with you with Advance when you started Ozone and way back. What's your comment on that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, you have to be 110% convinced that this is just an amazing glider. Otherwise, there's no point in bringing it out. Why would other people buy it if you're not 110% convinced yourself? So <laughs> it's, it's evidence to me. And, and also, it, it makes no financial sense either. You know, a glider has to be, you know, really astounding. Otherwise, it's going to be a financial flop. So there's no point in doing it. When we bring out a glider, you know, we, we, we make a lot of them and we send them out to dealers all around the world. It's a massive investment, you know, 100,000 euros or something. And unless you're 100% convinced that it's going to be a great glider, there's no point in doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look how many glider manufacturers there are today in the world and uh, how the competition is not getting less. It's getting absolutely ridiculous. And then there's still guys who will uh, pop up new uh, companies and say, OK, let me also have a try at it. Um, it becomes a little bit crazy after a while and it becomes nonsensical because at the end of the day, you guys are all competing for what? For a great model. And one of my friends from the past, I'm sure you'll remember him, is Andre Bucher. He yeah. was the importer of uh, gliders into uh, Europe and he was employing some 40 people and he had uh, two, three rubbish gliders that came from Eagle back, back then uh, and, and they had no chance. Uh, he had huge cash flow problems and he could think of no other way out but to rob a bank in uh, Vienna. And he went and did just that, but he didn't think it out very carefully. I think he was having a moment of madness, which happens to many of us. And uh, he was caught, of course, and spent two and a half years in jail for trying to save his paragliding You know, mad story. It's an absolutely crazy story, really incredible. <laughs> I'm trying to get him on the line. He's, uh, he's not in very good health at the moment. And um, he'd really like to uh, tell his story, which I'd dearly like to hear because he's got a lot of mad stories. He designed a paraglider that's um, car, an Audi uh, flying, uh, carried an Audi for an advert. Yes. Uh, he did a tandem glider with, with 12 people underneath it. <laughs> Do you remember that? I also remember he, he flew in the Stubai Cup with a glider with more than 100 square meters. Because they had a duration competition. That's correct. Uh, what's wrong with him? I'm sad to hear that he's uh, not well. Yeah, he's not well. I, I don't think uh, I'd like to publicly discuss what's going on with him, but uh, he's he's not well. He's not well. He's actually been flying gyrocopters in Namibia in the last years, and he swears by it. He actually told me the other day in a voice note. He said, uh, "I've been wasting my time for all these years paragliding shit." Uh, flying a gyrocopter in the canyons of uh, Namibia has got nothing on paragliding. And I'm like, wow, to hear that, that's, that's, <laughs> that's I flew a gyrocopter last year in uh, Fly Products down in Italy with the head of uh, Fly Products there. We have a little uh, cooperation going on between Fly Products in Italy and BGD. We're you know, I go down there and uh, help them sometimes. They're helping us uh, with test pilots, test flying. And uh, so it's a nice corporation. They're nice guys. That's a nice uh, family-run business as well. 
Yeah, that's the way it should be. And uh, you also produce a fantastic paramotor wing. Tell us about that. I mean, paramotoring's never really been your thing. How did you get into that? Uh, what's the story behind that? Yeah, the paramotor wing is the, the Luna. And it actually started as the Puma from Airwave before. And we've been working with Pascal Biondo, who is um, an Italian. He was the Italian national champion of paramotor. He worked on the development at Airwave around 10 years ago with me. And uh, so we developed that product together. And then since then, he's started working with Fly Products as well. And also I then updated the glider when I came to BGD. And so now we changed the name from Luna to Puma. So so Puma to Luna, so keeping the same similarity going on there. And uh, we've just carried on developing this same wing uh, using uh, Pascal Biondo as well as the test pilot. When a glider has got something really good in it, it's you just have to change it a little bit. We don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. Uh, Peter Richek's uh, glider, uh, a top-selling paramotor glider, and I think he's got three or four of them in his range, but his top-selling paramotor glider did its best sales in its fifth year of production. So the fifth year that it's been out was its best-selling year. Yeah, it's quite amazing, but uh, it was always Marcus Villinghoe was always telling me the story of the Cessna. You know, the Cessna is the most ex- you know, successful aircraft in the whole of aviation history. And uh, that, that design is 50 years old or, or more. And they're still producing them and still selling a lot. And the, they've just made some small tweaks, small updates to the basic design. But the, the basic design is very similar to what it was 50 years ago reiterate on that story, uh, Paul Guschelbauer takes a 1947 Cessna and flies around Alaska as a bush pilot. Uh, just unbelievable. And the thing is reliable as hell. Uh, who, who has to have something from brand new 2020? Yeah? yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing that makes a Cessna so great is it's just so unbelievably easy to fly. I have flown one. Uh, I did do some private pilot's lessons a few years ago. And uh, I flew one with my instructor in Malta and uh, went up above the clouds. And we didn't have any navigation instruments with us. And he gave me the, the controls and I flew around and we went offshore. And, and we had very bad visibility, probably only 10% visibility to the ground. And the instructor was completely lost, but I knew exactly where we were and was able to fly straight back to the airport and land, you know. It was, it was quite funny, you know, the, the, the experience of flying just gives you, you know, a much better position in 3D space without any instruments than, than these uh, aircraft instructors. Yeah, I have to laugh sometimes at the tandem business in Cape Town, of course, and we have 15 competitors and a whole lot of pilots who have never flown anywhere except there. They've never flown in a competition. They've never flown in a cloud before. And as the fog will sometimes just crouch in on the buildings and a lot of the guys will be completely shitting themselves and saying, no, we can't fly. And I'm like, but it's very simple. The sun is there. And if you orientate yourself, uh, you're going to find the landing. No, don't take off. It's too clouded in. And I'm like, have you ever been in Austria? Have you ever taken off on the hill where you can't see the landing field? But it's there. It's there, it doesn't run away. Yeah, so we have the same thing with uh, light aircraft as well. But uh, yeah, my, my passion remains paragliding and especially designing new paragliders. And it's always so exciting to fly with the new models and and to go out and, and play with the air on, on every, every day possible. 
This is another thing that I find different in um, competitions is because the thing that really excites me is when I do something which I think is impossible. And quite often when I'm flying, that happens. You know, you, you try and do something, you think, oh, I can never get over there, you know, it's just impossible. And then suddenly something happens that you don't expect and you get some convergence or whatever, and suddenly you can get through. And uh, I think a lot of the modern competition formats are not, uh, they don't excite me because they don't leave the possibility for things to happen that are impossible. And that's what really excites me in competition. You know, very often the, the task director, they want to see exactly how the task is going to be done. And then if it's, if it's not done that way, then they, they just cancel the task. You know? Whereas in the past, you know, we've, we've set impossible tasks and then we've achieved them in a way that nobody could have expected, which is really different. That's the most exciting thing. Uh, setting a kind of task that you'll think like, no, that's impossible, but then it's achieved and 15 guys make it to goal. What a winner. I mean, what's an absolute winner? Bruce, we were speaking about glider development for a moment. And if I may, let's go back to that. And I'd like to ask you how you envision things in the future. What's your wildest dream for a paraglider or for some flying machine that's free flying? Um, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to say. Obviously, if I knew the future, then I would do it now. <laughs> that's the easy answer. But um, yeah, for me, the immediate future is through the uh, development of simulation models. And I think the next step on will be uh, artificial, artificial intelligence design of paragliders, which is not very far away, I think. Because as soon as you can simulate the paragliders properly, then you can use AI to turn the whole thing on its head and you just ask the AI to you know, optimize glide angle and it will, you know, or you ask it to you know, optimize safety and, and you'll be able to and you'll be able to balance the parameters and then you get the AI to design, design exactly the glider that you need. So, you know, I think that step is, uh, is, is, not, is really not very far away. You have been doing Icaristics for the Cross Country Magazine for many, many years. How many editions do you think you might have included there? Yeah, I've been doing it for 25 years. We've been doing six editions a year for 25 years. So that's 150 articles. Yeah, 150 times. How do you get creative with something different every single time for 150 times? How does it do that? Yeah, there's always something completely new that comes up. Like the last article was on this uh, MRT, the multiple radius turn points. And I think that's going to turn competition on its head really, really in the next two to three years. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've been having the discussion with several competition pilots, both about scoring, the kind of mayhem that we're having, competition uh, format turning more and more towards just guys getting into a gaggle, staying in the gaggle, and the race is only on right near the end. No one kind of breaking away by themselves, no one doing their own kind of thinking, uh, just kind of follow the leader with two or three, if it's Aaron Durugati or whoever it is. Um, I saw this happening in South Africa two years ago at our pre-PWC. And it, it frankly disgusted me. I thought it uh, really is making paragliding losing its kind of kahunas, if I may, that paraglider pilots are not really going out there to think for themselves anymore. Well, the MRT system is uh, more related to not high-level competition, so it's not those racing competition, CCC kind of things, but bringing competition more to the, to the general public. 
and also leveling the playing field a bit more. I mean, I don't know if you know about the MRT, but it's um, it's a little bit like a handicap system, but it's actually very different because what it enables to do is to help the uh, lower performing gliders, but you still get the first over the line as the winner. This is the most important thing. So the guy that crosses the line the first is the winner. And that's the problem with most handicap systems. Most handicap systems, you do the task, everybody flies around it, and at the end you adjust the scores. You know, but with the MRT, the idea is that even the people who have a disadvantage, they, they are boosted at each turn point to bring them back so they can actually stay in the lead. I think that sounds fabulous. Uh, last year, I had the Gin Wide Open in Macedonia. I attended it, I flew with, and I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I think a lot of people, be competitive or not competitive, should be drawn into towards uh, competition flying because there's so much more for it. It's a paid cross-country. It's a um, cross-country flight where you're just pushed a little bit further. And even if you, as a person, are not in a, comp a competitive kind of edge, you can still have a really good time. Yeah, these kind of competitions, it's funny because the very first one of these competitions was the Airwave Challenge, which was based in Larania like uh, 25 years ago. And then we had the Airwave Challenge and then it got taken over by Ozone and then uh, Gin made the wide open. And now at BGD, we've got the BGD Weightless. And uh, so there's actually, well, that's three events of that kind of format, which is going on at the moment, the GIN, the Ozone, and the BGD. So it's just interesting to see the, the history of that and how it's evolved in the last 25 years. I like the idea of your handicap. So exactly how does it work? Do you have the cylinders of different sizes? or? Yeah, it's as simple as that. The cylinders are different sizes. And the way we did it at the weightless was we had a different size for each weight range. So as, the, as you got uh, heavier, you had a 400-meter cylinder. And then the lighter guys had a one and a half kilometer cylinder on each turn point. And there were 10 different weight groups. So we had every 100 meters, you know, we had one weight group with a 100 meter difference. So we had, you know, 400 meters, then 500 meters and 600. So the only guys doing the 400 meter cylinder was the 120 kilos and over pilots. Okay, so then, you know, then a 500 meter would be... Uh, 110 kilos and uh, 600 meter would be 100 kilos and it went all the way up to you know one and a half kilometer cylinder for really the lightweight people of 50 kilo 50 people 50 kilo total flying weight and uh, yeah it worked it worked super well and now we're thinking that you can do the same thing with glider classes as well you know ABs ABC D and CCC and use different radiuses for different classes. And if, it re if you really get sophisticated, you can do both at the same time, weight and class at the same time. But the problem is that each pilot had to enter his own turn point radius for take on takeoff. So every pilot is entering a slightly different task, which makes it a little bit uh, tricky at the briefings. And I think we need the instrument manufacturers to be able to include some software to automate that system a bit better. Well, that's a great public call to action. And uh, why not? Uh, let's hope that uh, the navigators and the fly masters of the world are listening to that. So that's great. Um, 
Now going back to teaching people some things, uh, give us your top tip. Uh, you mentioned earlier what to look out for. Um, obviously, with 150 times writing an article, you have so much to say. Please tell us everything. Give us a wealth of knowledge. Well, I'm not going to give you hundreds of different stories. I, th I think one thing which uh, is still quite controversial, but I'm still really convinced that it's important, is to tell pilots uh, not to put the brake handle on their wrists. Is I find is a really important um, piece of advice. You know, when you put on a brake handle, it shouldn't go beyond your thumb, because um, because it, it then locks the brake handle on your hand, and it's difficult to fully release your brakes. Uh, a lot of pilots are ignoring this advice, but it's actually one of the highest causes of accidents is is pilots keeping a little bit of brake on and just stalling all the way down to the ground. And so if you're an intermediate pilot who's not absolutely sure they can put their, their hands really super, super high, you can often have just five centimeters of brake is enough to keep you in a stall and put you all the way down into the ground. And if you have those your hands on your wrists, there's no way you're going to be able to release that brake in time for, you know, if, if you're in a stall situation or some really, you know, a big cravat or a deep stall or some serious maneuver. And I think, uh, you know, for, I would say, 90% of pilots is important that they do not put the brakes over their, over their thumb, you know, beyond their thumb. I mean, in France, they call that en dragon, this, uh, this position. I don't really know what the what the English word for this is, is called, flying with a brake on, on your wrist, if there's a special name for that flying technique. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot of pilots do it, uh, especially tandem pilots, actually. And uh, I really think it's strongly to be advised against. Mm -hmm. Nice one. I, I, you know, it's nothing that I would have thought of an important uh, number one safety tip, but uh, it's really, a, it's really a, a super interesting to hear it from you, uh, Bruce. Um, do you think lots of instructors around the world are still uh, um, encouraging people to fly like that? Do you think, I mean, I'm strongly against it. Uh, I believe in holding the lines directly or holding the toggles and then holding the lines like that, but definitely not through the hands. So especially on takeoff. I mean, the main danger is not being able to fully release the brakes, but the other problem is uh, throwing a rescue as well. It's a secondary problem, but I mean, for me, that's you know not a critical problem because I don't really rely on throwing my rescue, and I don't think other people should rely on throwing their rescue. I'm also opposed to this idea of having two rescues, unless you're an acro pilot and you for sure are going to go down. My philosophy is you should avoid using a rescue in the first place. Mm-hmm. How many times have you thrown your rescue in all your flying experience, mate? Um, one time on a hang glider when I crashed, and uh, never, never on a paraglider outside, outside testing rescues and doing SIV, you know, doing um, maneuver testing over water. So, just in normal flying on a paraglider, I've, I've never thrown my rescue. You know, cross-country flying, or you know, normal, normal uh, recreational flying. The the one time you threw your rescue on your hang glider, that was in Owens Valley, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, that was in Owens Valley during the World Championships in 1993. I was flying hang gliders, and uh, at that time, 
there was a problem with pitch stability on hang gliders. And during that competition, I think there was about 15 of us who crashed as a result of uh, these pitch stability problems. Uh, what would happen is, well, in my own particular case, I was straining level. I was just leveling out to do the final glide into goal and hit some turbulence over White Mountain. And my glider, instead of being above me, just was straight in front of me like a wall. And my head just hit the bottom, bottom of the glider like, uh, like my head just going into a wall. And uh, leading edge broke immediately. And I just was like a sycamore leaf laying on the glider upside down, just spinning around, going down onto the top of White Mountain. Um, but yeah, so after that, there was a lot more work on the development of pitch stability requirements for hang gliders. And they did tighten up the certification requirements. And now hang gliders have got, well, especially there's been uh, quite a few technological advances in hang gliders. So they are much more pitch stable than they used to be. Because at those times we were using luff lines to, luff lines, you know, the set on the sail, just holding up the, the trading edge to give you pitch stability. But now they've got internal carbon rods, which hold the sail up. And those are much more, they're much more fixed, if you like. The problem with the luff lines is they're, they're made of string, basically, you know, just a nylon thread. And the, the length was not very dimensionally accurate. And also the sail was, the angle of it, of them was also quite horizontal. And also if there was any change of shape of the sail, it would change the pitch stability quite a lot as well. So it was very tricky to establish, you know, really safe pitch stability limits on a hang glider at that time. Anyway, so uh, just to finish off the story, I ended up uh, crashing on the top of White Mountain, which is uh, in Owens Valley. It's one of the highest peaks in the United States. Over, It's about the same as Mont Blanc, I believe. And um, when, I, when I crashed, uh, I crashed into a snowfield, and the thermal was so strong that it, I took off again under the rescue because it's a super, super wild place flying over there. So I actually took off under the rescue, and it started to drag me back up the mountain to the peak. And uh, I undid my harness and jumped out into the snow. And then the glider carried on 300 meters up the mountain and went all the way to the peak until the rescue went on one side and the hang glider stayed on the other side. But um, the net result was that all my equipment was completely smashed because it just was dragging all the way up the mountain, just smashing into the rocks. And uh, everything I had was broken, including uh, two, two radios. And I had um, you know, oxygen systems, instruments, everything completely smashed. So I could not communicate with anybody. And it was before the time of mobile phones, so no mobile phone either. So I just uh, stayed put up on the mountain, waiting for a rescue to come. I waited there, and just before the sun went down, in the evening, a little Cessna came by and I saw the meat director like just wave like this out of the window of the Cessna. And I was thinking, well, that's a lot of good. You know, how, are you, how is that going to help me? So I decided to, um, to start walking down and I took my rescue chute to sleep in and I walked down below 3000 meters for, for to, spend, to spend the night where, it was, where there was a bit more, bit more warmth and uh, the oxygen levels were better. And then uh, woke up before dawn and walked all the way down to the main road. It took me about eight hours walking down. And 
And when I got to the main road, I, um, like little hillbilly farms in the middle of nowhere in Owens Valley, um, they called in for me. The British team sent a van to come pick me up. And instead of taking me back to the town, they took me straight up to take off where the British team had rigged another hang glider for me. And I had an hour to take off for the next task. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't win the competition, put it that way. Oh, needless to say, it's like I was discussing with, uh, flying with the hangover, how well you fly um, <laughs> because you're simply just distracted, you know. <laughs> so, yo, that is one of the maddest stories I've ever heard. Uh, that's insane. For starters, you know, you have no extra water, no food. You walk down for eight hours and you just think, all right, my, my competition's over. I'm going to sleep for like 36 hours and then I'll be human again. And no, the British team have got different ideas for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, straight to take off. That was pretty funny. But uh, yeah, it was an amazing event. Yeah, we, there was uh, me and Robin Hamilton as well. He, he also tumbled in that competition. And he ended up landing face first on a rock and uh, exploded his nose like a tomato. So that, and he, but he's still flying in, in the USA. He's flying in the US team now. You must have so many people that you've met over the years and have, have met just the hell of a craziest characters in paragliding and in hang gliding. Tell us another funny story, please, Bruce. <laughs> but it was funny you were telling me about uh, Andre Booker robbing a bank because uh, the same thing happened in the USA to Rich Pfeiffer, who was a top USA pilot at one time. And uh, and he the same story happened to him. He ended up robbing a bank, uh, no, robbing a gas station, I believe, and ended up in jail after robbing a gas station. But um, yeah. Hang gliding is very different to paragliding, isn't it? I mean, the the, the thinking, the the kind of uh, personalities. When I see hang glider pilots, I just look at them as a as if they're from another planet. <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of hang glider pilots switched over to paragliding, like myself. Good for you. <laughs> John Pendry is one of the top oh. gliding pilots. I mean, to me, he was the god of of hang gliding. Uh, he won more hang gliding competitions than anybody else ever. And he's also, he won more competitions also than any paraglider pilot has won. You know, he, he was just so far ahead of the rest of the field. And he's now living in Bali flying uh, tandem hang gliders, uh, sorry, tandem paragliders in Bali. So he's another great hang glider pilot flying a lot of paragliders. I think I'm going to have to look him up and get a little podcast out of him. That would be fantastic. I'm sure he's got a bloody beautiful story to tell. And it's really strange. Two nights ago, I was dreaming of paragliding in the north of Bali. Uh, apparently, it's just the most beautiful place to just continuously soar. Yeah, I've well, I've only been there once and it wasn't flyable. So <laughs> we had wind over the back. Not so, soarable. So it was, I don't know, out of season, wrong time of year. But I went on my honeymoon, so we had other things to do. Of course, of course. Would you like to hear my honeymoon joke? <laughs> Fire away, yeah. <laughs> a couple are just about to get married, and uh, the, the bride-to-be says to her mom, Mom, uh, we're going off on honeymoon. And the mom says, oh, that's great. And this is still in the 70s. She says, you must phone me after a few days of honeymoon and tell me how it's going and what's up. You know, super curious is the mother. And uh, she says, but don't say sex on the telephone. 
because you know uh, people are listening in the cross lines those people who are putting there uh, so don't say so. just use a code word say like say you were at a concert uh, that would be our code word so great mom i'll do it phones after a few days on on uh, honeymoon after like three or four days and the mom says oh yeah hi how are you doing she says oh great she says what happened what happened she says great we got into our hotel room and straight away we had straight away we had a concert she says oh oh yes uh-huh and then well then we put our bags down she says oh that's lovely and then and then we moved to the bed and we had another concert she says oh wow and then well we like rested for an hour and then we had another concert she says wow she says yeah but then we started getting hungry so we decided we'd go down to the hotel a restaurant we ate something we came back up to the room another quick concert and then we really had to sleep and then we woke up and then we had a rehearsal <laughs> what <laughs> we had a rehearsal mom says what's what is a rehearsal she says you know mom it's like a concert but nobody comes <laughs> Very... Bruce, what music do you hear? I, I like to know from each of the people I interview what is the style of music or their favorite artist or what very song is it that drives them? Uh, it's funny because uh, me and my wife, we're in confinement and last night we had this... Uh, crazy dancing session in the living room, dancing around, listening to all our old favorite music and stuff. And uh, we drank some margaritas, had our own little party with just the two of us. And uh, really reminded me of some of my most favorite uh, music. I think more Chiba has got to be one of my, one of my most favorite music. Um, Lhasa as well, uh, Buica. So, Bent, do you know the band Bent, B-E-N-T? Uh, no, I don't. Look them up. They have an album called Aerials. It's a really nice one. You will, might like it a lot. Okay. I'll do that. That's therapeutic to dance like that. I think a lot of people in lockdown should be doing that. I, I feel a lot of people are missing out on lots of opportunities. And it's one of the things that I'm trying to uh, kind of transmit to the world is Let's use this time for opportunity. Let's use this time for communicating with friends and family and, and, and actually doing the things that we should be doing, not sitting, stewing and stressing. And let's go for new and fresh, wonderful rethinking. What do you say to that, Bruce? Yeah, absolutely. And for sure, it's a, a family time above all because, uh, you know, with the, we are all in the family, in the house. Um, most of the time, there's five of us there. Um, my son, Tia, he just moved into his own apartment. Actually, since the confinement started, he moved just as the beginning of the confinement. So we do see him still sometimes. But uh, yeah, we're just like a full, uh, small family group. And um, yeah, it's, it it's, gives a lot of family time. It's cool. Tell us about your family. You have that daughter that I saw on your WhatsApp uh, picture. She must be 10 or 11 years old. She must be your youngster. Is that right? Or are there other surprises that I don't know about? Yeah, no, you got that wrong, I'm afraid. My daughter is 20, and she's a kite surf instructor in Thailand. And she's decided to stay in Thailand on a little desert island uh, during the lockdown. And we're speaking to her every day, but it's, it's kind of tricky because they have lockdown over there as well. It's uh, quite hard to when you're not at home and everything is locked down and you're in a foreign country. But, but she's still enjoying it. 
I have three children. Uh, Tier is uh, 21. My oldest is a boy and he's uh, flying uh, competitions and he's just started working as a test pilot for me. Uh, Freya is 20. She's a kite instructor in Thailand. And Gunnar, my youngest, is uh, 16 now. I just had his birthday. Okay. So the, the picture on my Facebook is uh, flying tandem with Gunnar, who's my youngest boy. So really unfortunate we lost the rest of the conversation. Unfortunately, the cell phone signal went completely bad. But what a wonderful interview with Bruce. Bruce, I thank you from the deepness of my heart. It was absolutely great chatting with you. It was John Pendry we were referring to that's flying paragliders in the north of Bali now. That didn't come through too clearly. And absolutely wonderful to go and look on Bruce Goldsmith's website after doing research for this um, podcast. Folks, what a pleasure, what a good laugh, and what a wonderful, wonderful conversation talking about all the um, interesting developments in paragliding. The MRT was super fascinating for me. Uh, had a good laugh telling a joke in the middle of it. And to listen to the sounds of Lhasa and Mochiba, what an absolute pleasure. So what a great podcast. Share it far and wide. Tell the world about it. And of course, go and visit Bruce Goldsmith's excellent website. Some of the test pilots and some of the team pilots around the world are all featured on that website. Look forward to seeing you all soon. My name is Steph. It's been an absolute pleasure.